Good evening from my flagship station, WGAU in Athens, Georgia. I'm Eric Erickson. Welcome. The phone number, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Glad to have you with me. We've got a jam-packed show. Baghdadi is dead. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the austere religious cleric and conservative scholar, in the words of the Washington Post, as dead. The president got him. Uh, let's go to the president. And, um, well, <laughs> the president's strong words. Last night, the United States brought the world's number one terrorist leader to justice. Abu Bakar al-Baghdadi is dead. He was the founder and leader of ISIS, the most ruthless and violent terror organization anywhere in the world. The United States has been searching for Baghdadi for many years. Capturing or killing Baghdadi has been the top national security priority of my administration. U.S. Special Operations Forces executed a dangerous and daring nighttime raid in northwestern Syria and accomplished their mission in grand style. The U.S. personnel were incredible. I got to watch much of it. No personnel were lost in the operation, while a large number of Baghdadi's fighters and companions were killed with him. He died after running into a dead-end tunnel, whimpering and crying and screaming all the way. The compound had been cleared by this time, with people either surrendering or being shot and killed. Eleven young children were moved out of the house and are uninjured. The only ones remaining were Baghdadi in the tunnel, and he had dragged three of his young children with him. They were led to certain death. He reached the end of the tunnel as our dogs chased him down. He ignited his vest, killing himself and the three children. His body was mutilated by the blast. The tunnel had caved in on it, in addition. But test results gave certain immediate and totally positive identification. It was him. It was him. <laughs> I got in trouble yesterday for entitling um, a piece on this. Is <laughs> Al Baghdadi rests in pieces? <laughs> he blew himself up in the cave with his kids. What sort of monster? Well, he is a monster. That's what he does. Well, the president immediately got blowback from some people uh, because of how he described Baghdadi dying. I personally thought it was appropriate. It was good to hear the American president say. And it goes. The reaction here just shows exactly how. So many people have Trump derangement syndrome on both sides. It's not just a thing of the left. There are people on the right. I think it's worth acknowledging. There are people on the right who will defend the craziest things the president says, but then there are people on the left who will never give the president praise. And we saw that yesterday. The president uh, oversaw this. He ordered it. He he made it happen, was in the situation room, and the left was already peddling conspiracy theories about whether or not he was actually there. And they were really upset with this. Um. And losers they are. They had no idea what they were getting into. 
In some cases, they were very frightened puppies. In other cases, they were hardcore killers. But they killed many, many people. Their murder of innocent Americans, James Foley, Stephen Sotloff, Peter Kasich, and Kayla Mueller were especially heinous. The shocking publicized murder of Jordanian pilot, a wonderful young man, spoke to the King of Jordan. They all knew him. They all loved him. He was burned alive in a cage for all to see on the execution of Christians in Libya and Egypt, as well as the genocidal mass murder of Yazidis, rank ISIS among the most depraved organizations, the history of our world. The forced religious conversions, the orange suits prior to so many beheadings, all of which were openly displayed for the world to see. This was all that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, this is what he wanted. This is what he was proud of. He was a sick and depraved we go. man. And now he's gone. Baghdadi was vicious and violent, and he died in a vicious and violent way as a coward running and crying. Running and crying he was. Uh, you know, it was good that the president reminded people of what ISIS has done because it seems so abstract and far away. They actually named the operation in honor of Kayla Mueller. And let's not forget who she was. Uh, she was working in southern Turkey with a relief agency, uh, went into northern Iraq to help there and was captured by ISIS, brutally murdered uh, by ISIS. She and a number of other people, her parents coming forward, pra praising the president for this attack, actually um, blasting Barack Obama for not being as aggressive in going after uh, Baghdadi thinking that uh, ISIS they didn't really need to go after ISIS and this president did well it wasn't just this the president also went on and blasted ISIS itself and there are a lot of people saying oh, I can't believe he would say that he's just going to inflame them uh, we killed their leader the, the idea that killing their leader isn't going to inflame them uh, but saying that their leader died like a coward is is a little bit ridiculous. The thug who tried so hard to intimidate others spent his last moments in utter fear, in total panic and dread, terrified of the American forces bearing down on him. We were in the compound for approximately two hours. And after the mission was accomplished, we took highly sensitive material and information from the raid, much having to do with ISIS, origins, future plans, things that we very much want. Good. Baghdadi's demise demonstrates America's relentless pursuit of terrorist leaders and our commitment to the enduring and total defeat of ISIS and other terrorist organizations. Our reach is very long. As you know, last month we announced that we recently killed Hamza bin Laden, 
the very violent son of Osama bin Laden, who was saying very bad things about people, about our country, about the world. He was the heir apparent to Al-Qaeda, terrorists who oppress and murder innocent people should never sleep soundly, knowing that we will completely destroy them. Good for the President of the United States. Uh, listen, he should be praised for this. It was very interesting, I thought, Pete Souza, who most of you probably have never heard of, but Pete Souza was the White House photographer for Barack Obama. I followed him for the longest time on Instagram and finally stopped following him. He, he's a very interesting guy and takes wonderful photographs. But over time, it, it became very clear that he's just another one of the people that President Trump has broken. And, and everything needed to be a passive-aggressive piece on Instagram against President Trump or in praise of Barack Obama, um, pivoting, pitting him against uh, Donald Trump. Uh, Pete Susan noted on Twitter yesterday that uh, the raid began at 3 o'clock, 3.30 p.m., and the White House picture from the Situation Room didn't come in until 5 30 p.m why was this and uh, the implication there seemed to be uh it seemed to be at least that uh, he thought the picture was staged or some such um other people immediately leapt to that conclusion and began circulating it on social media that the president had staged the picture because the president had not left his golf course until three o'clock so how could he be there if the raid was at 3 3 30 well, it turns out that the actual portion of the raid the president needed to pay attention to didn't come until 5.30 or so, and there they were in the Situation Room. And then, of course, you had people saying, oh, look, 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 someone stood in front of them and blocked the TVs to take the picture. They they weren't watching anything. Why, why was the photographer there? The Obama administration did the same thing. It, it, it's interesting to see Nancy Pelosi uh, lavished praise on Barack Obama during the Osama bin Laden uh, raid lavish praise her very first paragraph effusive praise for the president and secretary of defense and the cia director uh and now not so much nothing just praising the troops she can't bring herself to say anything nice about the president in fact she waits till the end of the press release to attack the president um it, it, this is a people are broken by the president in this you know i criticize the president on a on a regular basis in fact, I make Trump supporters mad often by saying I, I think he should have done something. Or, for example, last week got people mad by saying Bill Taylor, um, the Ukraine ambassador that the president himself appointed, is not some sort of uh, anti-Trump, never-Trumper person. He's actually a credible, competent guy and got blown up by it. But the president deserves credit here. The president deserves credit. The American soldiers deserve credit. Uh, you know, it was Barack Obama who said he got Osama bin Laden. And now Donald Trump says he got big Baghdadi. And the people who were fine with Barack Obama saying he got Osama bin Laden are suddenly horrified that Donald Trump is saying the same thing. What's good for the goose? Now, here's the national security advisor on TV talking about this. I, I, I want to go back to and, and focus on what happened. I mean, th this leader al-Baghdadi was was the most vicious cruel man in, in my prior job as the hostage envoy I had a chance to meet the Kasichs and Mueller's and Sotlofs and and uh, and Foley's uh, I had a chance to speak with Diane Foley this morning we finally brought justice to a man that, that beheaded the the three Americans two journalists and a humanitarian worker and then Kayla Mueller who was working as a humanitarian great young uh, American idealistic young girl and one of the things that General Milley did is General Milley named the operation, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff named the operation uh, that took down al-Baghdadi after Kayla Mueller. Good for them in doing that. Here's Secretary of Defense. Sure. Well, let me say, first of all, this is a great day for America. This is a great day for the world. The president made a very decisive action, and our troops and our interagency partners uh, executed it brilliantly. So 
As you know, we defeated the physical caliphate earlier this year, and now the leader is dead. And so, again, that's great news, and I want to commend all that participated in the operation. I will tell you this, that the operation was conducted last night. Uh, the president approved a raid onto the target. Uh, the aim was to capture uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, and if we couldn't capture him, uh, then, of course, we were going to kill him. And the vice president also spoke. The vice president, by the way, did, did the rounds of the Sunday shows. Got a couple of different pieces from him from the different shows. He was on, I think, Face the Nation. Uh, I think he was also on with Chris Wallace on Fox News Sunday. Here, here's the vice president. Whether or not American forces have to be in harm's way. So are, are and if they're not on the mission, they weren't on the mission. ISIS, the caliphate, had been destroyed. So the president said, we'll bring them home. But last night... The President of the United States proved to the world mm -hmm. that our fight against ISIS is unrelenting and by, and by uh, killing the leader of ISIS, the active right. operational leader of ISIS, who it was reported just two weeks ago was giving orders to ISIS fighters in Syria. Uh, we believe we'll have a measurable impact on the effectiveness of that terrorist organization, but we're not going to let up, we're not going to stop the fight. But and, and at the same time, we're going to continue to work with our allies to establish that safe zone mm -hmm. between Kurdish Syria and Turkey that the president had myself and Secretary of State Pompeo negotiate in Ankara just a week ago. One more from the vice president. I, I don't know that I really understand the question. The, the Democrats in Congress have been pursuing uh, an impeachment by and large for the last three years. And I think what the American people have seen in the last 12 hours, what they've seen in the last three years is President Donald Trump has never stopped fighting to keep the promises that we made to the people. And, you know, I play that last one intentionally because he mentions impeachment. It's it's kind of it's one of those weird things. I commented on it last week that, you know, life does go on. Uh, the president continues to do his job. Uh, there's this sense that you get in the media that all of Washington is now fixated on impeachment, that that everything in Washington revolves around impeachment. It's it's the headline of the day is impeachment on a daily basis. Who said what? Who leaked what? Who did what? Who's discrediting whom? Who's attacking whom? There, there's a big story out that some Republicans now think John Roberts would need to recuse himself if there was an impeachment trial, which he actually can't do under the Constitution, and he wouldn't do. Um, it, but other things do happen. The president still campaigns for re-election. The Democrats still run for office. The president still exercises his duties as commander-in-chief to oversee a raid. Life goes on. It is important to remember that there's more to Washington than impeachment, just as there is more to life than uh, Washington politics. And we got a lot of others. We will talk about Kanye West. Yes, we. I know you've been waiting all weekend for my thoughts on Kanye West. I have listened to the album. We'll get into that as well. Jamie Lee Curtis. The actress, I, I guess Donald Trump has broken her too. She she has tweeted out now. Uh, he may have died a coward, Donald Trump, but all living things suffer when they are blown up. Anyone who has experienced warfare, unlike yourself, would know that war is brutal. Dogs are brave, bold, loyal, loving, and healing. He said he, he was chased by dogs, died like a dog. The president has a thing for saying he at one point he said I was fired like a dog. I, I hadn't been, but he tweeted that he, he does that on occasion but uh, man the the level of animosity from people towards the president who got Baghdadi. we can't just say you know i'm old enough to remember when barack obama ordered the raid that killed osama bin laden when republicans said wait a second why is he taking all the credit 
people called Republicans racist. They, they, they didn't want to give the president of the United States any credit. And now you've got Democrats out there doing the exact same thing. They, they don't want to give the president any credit. They're trying to find some way to be outraged. You know one of the ways they're trying to be outraged? The president said he didn't tell anybody. He didn't tell Nancy Pelosi, and this apparently is a high crime and misdemeanor in Washington that he did not tell Nancy Pelosi. They're livid over this. Listen to the president from a reporter asking him a question yesterday. We've notified some. Others are being notified now as I speak. Uh, we were going to notify him last night, but we decided not to do that because Washington leaks like I've never seen before. There's nothing, there's no country in the world that leaks like we do. And Washington is a leaking machine. And I told my people we will not notify them until the our great people are out, not just in, but out. I don't want to have them greeted with uh, fire power like you wouldn't believe. So we were able to get in. It was top secret. It was kept. There were no leaks, no nothing. The only people that knew were the few people that I dealt with. And again, Mark Milley and the Joint Chiefs of Staff were incredible. Uh, we had some tremendous backup. Robert O'Brien, Secretary Esper, Secretary Pompeo, Pence, I told you, he was great. We, this is a very small group of people that knew about this. We had very, very few people. We, a, leak, a leak could have caused the death of all of them. Yep. And he was right. He didn't need to tell the Democrats. We're, we're in, at such a point of, of Trump derangement syndrome out there that he didn't need to tell anybody. Uh, you know, Newsweek, apparently, a reporter at Newsweek got wind of what was happening, and even he held it for several hours. He said he he's a Marine. He, he would not leak that and put them in jeopardy. In Washington today, you know, honest to goodness, uh, this is one of those things that could get me in trouble for saying, but the level of poison in the atmosphere in Washington is so great these days. I could very easily see them thinking that if we tell someone, and again, uh, whether it's true or not, I, I could see this entering into the calculation of some people there. Whether we tell, if we tell someone, they may so hate the president that they do let it leak, and that puts our troops in jeopardy, or the raid fails just so they can get a win on the president. And there may be people who would think that. I mean, look at the number of people who are attacking the president over this. Look at the number of people who were chanting lock him up at the Washington Nationals game. There are so many people driven so crazy by this president. I would not be surprised if someone, if they found out about this, would let it slip, would either uh, try to flag it publicly to make sure people know that it's happening, to, to either undermine the troops or undermine the operation, just so they can own the president. It's, it's insane that we're at this point. Uh, like, for example, let, let me play this clip real quick um, of the president yesterday. When you requested the, to the Russians to fly over this area they controlled. What did you tell them? We spoke them? to the Russians. What did you tell them? We told them we're coming in. Okay. And they said, thank you for telling us. They were very good. But did you tell them why? No. No. Uh, they did not know why. Was any other uh, We did tell them, we think you're going to be very happy. Because, you know, again, they hate ISIS as much as we do. You know what ISIS has done to Russia? So, uh, no, we did not tell. They did not know the mission, but they knew we were going over an area that they had uh, They had a lot of firepower. Well, and, you know, the Russians have come out. They, they are denying the raid actually happened. They're, they're trying to deny that we actually got it. And, and the media is, is really upset here. Some I've seen reporters on social media say, so you mean you told the Russians, but you wouldn't tell Nancy Pelosi? How dare you? Well, you know. 
we had to let sure they knew we were flying over. Uh, the derangement in Washington on both sides has gotten out of control these days. Just give the president the win. Be glad about it. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here, and you can call in and be a part of the program if you like. 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425 is the phone number. Glad to have you with me here. And now we need to go into... Well, the media reaction to the president, and, and this is, uh, again, uh, to, to repeat myself intentionally, life goes on in Washington, D.C. It's not all impeachment. Uh, the office of the president, uh, the president himself still has immense power. He is the commander in chief. These things happen and he gets credit for it. There is a lot of the media trying to deny the president credit. It's actually really telling more about the media than the president, how many are trying to find little ways to attack the president, like not telling Nancy Pelosi, uh, the matter of letting the Russians know we were flying over. Um, it, it really is somewhat incredible to see that. And yet... Much of the media can't help but note that this is the president of the United States. He is the commander in chief. He did authorize the raid and this will be good for him and his approval rating. Uh, this is a huge success. It does matter. It matters to the family of the U.S. hostages who were beheaded so cruelly by ISIS. It matters to all those thousands of victims of families still surviving, uh, not just in Iraq and in Syria, but also the Yazidis as well who were taken as sex slaves. There are many people who will be celebrating today. That's ABC News on this. Now, listen to Jake Tapper from CNN. Something else that President Trump did that I'm sure everybody at this table um, applauds, which is he reminded us of the names of some of the people, the Americans uh, and, 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 and at least uh, one Brit uh, who had been killed uh, brutally by ISIS, the journalists James Foley and Stephen Satloff, uh, the humanitarian workers Peter Kasig and Kayla Mueller, um, as well as the Jordanian pilot. Uh, who had been uh, burned alive by ISIS. And th that's an important reminder for people, uh, in addition to, of course, uh, as Jeremy Diamond mentioned uh, before the speech, uh, the individuals inspired by ISIS uh, killed uh, in California, killed in Florida, killed in New York. Now, contrast Tapper and ABC News with Ken Delanian from NBC News, who has been uh, a, a very, very partisan. He's openly partisan on social media, has frequently attacked the president and, and run with uh, smears on the president that had to be retracted. He was on uh, MSNBC yesterday. Just just behold this, uh, how so many reporters are broken by Donald Trump. Yeah, so, you know, again, I, I said at the very beginning, I think al-Baghdadi is an operational victory. Uh, but you have to view that operational victory in terms of the larger strategy. Uh, what's our strategic position in Syria? And I think as we see, you know, this operation wouldn't have happened without the intelligence and the partnership of the Iraqis, without the partnership, uh, you know, of our allies in the region, without the partnership, frankly, of the Kurds, who gave us, we know, we've heard, uh, who gave us some of the information that we needed to execute this operation. So as we put that relationship at risk, mm -hmm. we put at risk our ability to do future operations like this. So it has to be taken as a whole. The operational victory is unquestionable, uh, and, and we should sit back and, and be proud of that. Uh, but we have to keep our eye on the larger strategic picture. Final you know, Steve is being very polite. The, the reality is we've walked away from the Kurds right at the time where they were giving us intelligence that apparently was key to this operational victory, according to them. And what my sources 
sources are telling me is that takes the counterterrorism pressure off ISIS and that risks an ISIS resurgence. And so this may be, as you said, an operational tactical victory, but strategically, Donald Trump has set the fight against ISIS back significantly. Yeah, by killing their leader, we've set the fight back. This is this is the spin on NBC. And here's the meet the press panel on this. Well, I think it's going to be a battle of I told you so's in some ways in in frankly in the president's own circles. I think you're going to have some uh, who, who had warned the president, be careful, we shouldn't pull back our presence. They're going to say, see, our presence there, our ability to work with the Kurds, get the intelligence, that's how we got Baghdadi, and we're going to have to uh, be there and stay there and remain there to make sure ISIS doesn't uh, uh, reform. And I think President Trump's going to look at this and say, see, I can shrink the footprint and do this. Uh, I'll be curious to see his posture this morning but it very much might have a mission accomplished feel to it on this. And I think rhetorically, the president's going to feel as if he has a chip to play here that says in this basically debate he's having with his own party and in some cases his own national security team to say, hey, um, I think I can win the political argument on this one. We got al-Baghdadi. Yeah, he may very well be able to. In fact, uh, on Face the Nation, uh, listen to the from Face the Nation. Listen to this. First, I think you're going to see a lot of Democrats praising the military and praising the special forces and even praising the president for making the decision. And rightfully so. You're right. There will be a rallying around the flag. And, I think, and rightly so. And right, rightly so. A hundred percent. I mean, I'm I am proud of our of our special forces today, and I'm proud of the president today for for making uh, this decision. Proud of the president today for making this decision. Yes. And Brian Stetler on CNN. At the same time, I think his, his speech and his, his answers were inspiring to many, many tens of millions of Americans who want to hear their president talk in visceral terms about the life and death consequences. Yes. But but I, I play all of those because this you can tell the media is trying, trying, trying to grasp some way to attack Donald Trump about this, trying to distinguish him from uh, Barack Obama and the Bin Laden raid. They're trying, and oh, it's it's the president speaking style. We don't like the president speaking style. We don't like that that he said these bad things over at MSNBC. Alex, something needs to be said. Uh, the president's language, very you know, dogs, uh, crying, uh, it's just astonishing, bellicose, boastful uh, language is unhelpful. Uh, you know, it's just astonishing to me, it's sort of unpresidential conduct. Unpresidential conduct to say that the, the bad guy was dying and whimpering. See, contrast this with the Obama team. The Obama team decided that they wanted to be very quiet about the, the Bin Laden situation. They didn't want to talk about the pornography and other things found in the house. They they didn't want to do any of that. They wanted to dispose of the body quickly. And, and there were a lot of people saying, you know, it, it would be a propaganda victory for us if we talked about um, Osama Bin Laden being a coward and, and, and on and on and on. Um, Barack Obama didn't want to do that. Uh, they, they found all sorts of things in the Osama Bin Laden house. Um, they... They dispatched him. They, I guess, threw his body at sea, buried him at sea, some such. They did not want the propaganda out there. They, the, the Obama administration, I got to be careful here. I don't want media matters to come out for me tongue tying between o, Osama and Obama. Um, the Obama administration did not want the 
propaganda because the progressives in the administration thought that would fire up the other side. Killing the leader is what fires up the other side. They didn't want to rub salt in the wounds. They were afraid that that would make them even more passionate. The, the Trump administration, a lot of Republicans back then said this is a mistake. The Those groups depend on propaganda. They depend on firing up the rhetoric um, that their guys are sent by, by Allah himself. Uh, they are establishing a caliphate. They are protected by God. The Americans can't hurt them. And here comes Donald Trump saying uh, he was chased by dogs. He died like a dog. He was a coward. He blew himself to pieces. He took three of his kids with him. I actually think that's a good thing. I do. I think it is good for the American public to hear that these people can be gotten. I think it is good for the ISIS people to hear that their leaders are not protected by Allah. They are not the, the divine servant establishing a caliphate. They are cowards who die in caves, killing kids with them. Uh, he should take great pride in making decisions that allow this operation to take place. But 50 minutes, he stepped all over the uh, the context of, of what we ought to be proud of. But, but General, that kind of language, I suppose there, there are two ways that can be interpreted by potentially ISIS followers. It can reduce the stature of al-Baghdadi, correct? Mm -hmm. I mean, it could make him look like he was a weak man at the end and not this visionary that many will have will held him to. But might it also incite rage from those who followed him as if there was a lack of respect shown to him and a then, lack of respect you know, get their blood boiling if you will well who knows look it's faux tough guy talk and to be honest i don't even think it's very believable i mean why would he even know what you know, his personal demeanor was down a tunnel in the darkness so i i think it's sort of nonsense faux tough guy talk it's on <sighs> they can't let him get a win they can't do it there are plenty of things to criticize this president for. This is not one of them. And the fact that they feel compelled. Uh, here's, oh, what's his name? Uh, over at CNN, um, one of their foreign policy guys in the Middle East. Listen to this guy. Yeah, there were lots of moments during Donald Trump's speech which jarred to some degree. It was extraordinary how the communications were managed. Uh, it's, uh, there's a long trail ahead of him actually finally releasing details, explicit details, some of which sort of echoed, and frankly, the crudeness you would often expect to hear maybe from ISIS about the whimpering, uh, screaming Baghdadi pinned down in a, a sealed tunnel, killing himself and his three children. Um, it, was, it was sort of disturbing to hear to some degree. Disturbing to hear, folks. It was disturbing. I'm, I'm sorry. It was disturbing. It was upsetting. I'm sorry. Now, listen, I, I just, I, I'm, at least some members of Congress are, are not so polluted by their hatred of the president uh, that they are, in fact, willing to give him some credit. It was certainly an appropriate uh, mission to green light. Uh, and so in that regard, the president made the right decision. Now we need uh, him to continue to make appropriate decisions moving forward. That was uh, Congressman Jeffries, and here's Congressman Thornberry, who actually, he's a Republican, Thornberry is. As, as you pointed out, it's a big deal to get Baghdadi, and I think the president sure. deserves a lot of credit for, uh, for authorizing the, the raid. If it had gone bad, he would have gotten the blame. 
Yes, exactly. He would have gotten the blame if it had gone bad because it would have leaked out and he would have gotten the blame. Um, the president did well here. I, I have spent this hour uh, trying to to give you the lay of the land, uh, the, what the president said, what his administration have said, what those around him have said, and the media response to it. What is so striking is that this is a big win against ISIS and it comes uh, for two weeks, three weeks where so many people, myself included, have been fixated on what's going on in northern Syria. Uh, the release of ISIS prisoners, they, they were able to escape. Uh, the Kurds, uh, we to some degree, we betrayed the Kurds. In fact, the president, uh, I did, did not play the clip, but the president did note that the Syrian and Iraqi Kurds helped tremendously providing intelligence. The New York Times today has a piece out that essentially says that the raid was successful in spite of the president. The president did everything he possibly could to undermine it. Uh, the president betrayed the Kurds. He betrayed our intelligence. They had to rush it because of the president withdrawing us from Syria. They didn't want to tell the president about it. They wanted to keep him out of the loop. They didn't think he could keep his mouth shut. On and on, it just a, a series of people bad-mouthing the president off the record or, or on background at least. They don't want their names attached to it. Sources say this happened in spite of the president president the president was the chief obstacle to getting Baghdadi. on and on and on it goes here here's the thing that may be true i mean let, let's just let's concede for sake of argument i know you don't want to but let's concede just for sake of argument just wait to wait for the point wait for the point but let's concede for the sake of argument that it's true the president pulling us out of northern syria uh, letting the Syrian Kurds go, having them be angry with us. They're providing us with on-the-ground intelligence. We know, in fact, the president said it was Syrian Kurds who gave us the intelligence to find Baghdadi. For the sake of argument, let's just say the president pulling this out did undermine it. Just for the sake of argument, bear with me. Let me make this point. What does it matter yesterday? Why? Why can't the New York Times wait several days and confirm they rushed the story out. I mean, it was it was less than 12 hours after Baghdadi's body exploded into pieces that the New York Times felt compelled to rush out a story that said the president really didn't do much. They had the story out shortly after the president addressed the nation. Why would they do that? It's not that they want to report. They could have reported. In fact, they had a very detailed report on, on what actually happened. But they had to go out of their way to make sure to note editorializing. Sources say don't give the president any credit. Don't, don't, don't give the president any credit on this. The president actually undermined this. The president put this at risk. The president shouldn't be given credit for this. The president had nothing to do with it. The president made it harder to do. The only reason you rush that into a story is because... Politically, you're trying to stop the president from owning this. You're trying to stop the president from being able to get credit. You gave Barack Obama all the credit in the world, but you can't give Donald Trump any credit. You know, it may very well be true. For the sake of argument, let's say it is true. Why do you put it in then and there? Because it's true, because it's true. No, you don't put it in there because the story is not even 24 hours old. There are other sources who might contradict it. But you want to rush it into the story. You want to get it in there when you're covering the entire story because you want to minimize any credit the president can give. That's why you do it. All this does, even if it's true, all it does is it plays into the president's supporters' belief that the media is out to get the president. It undermines the media's credibility itself to go out of the media's way in 12 hours after Baghdadi is dead 
to push the entirety of the angle being, okay, uh, our military got ISIS's leader, no thanks to the president. Do you know what the American military can't do without the president? They can't go do something like this. The president gave the order to do it. The president okayed it. To say the president had nothing to do with it when he's the one who ordered it is a little bit ridiculous, but that's where the media is right now. On every story possible under the sun, the media is working tirelessly to make sure that the president gets no credit, even for things the president should get credit for. And that, in turn, causes more and more people to turn off the media, to not pay attention to the media, to not listen to the media. You know, there are a lot of things the media covers, and they actually cover well. There are a lot of things the media covers, and they cover truthfully. There are a lot of things, the minutia of government, the minutia of day-to-day life in America, where the media actually does a pretty good job. But even those things get trusted less in the media because when the media botches the big stories of the day for partisan gain, it's hard to trust them on anything. We live in a day and age where the American media is trusted less and less. And this helps us. Look at the Washington Post yesterday. The Washington Post ran al-Baghdadi's obituary, and its original story was that ISIS's extremist-in-chief, that's how they refer to him, extremist-in-chief, or no, I'm sorry, terrorist-in-chief, terrorist-in-chief, ISIS leader, terrorist-in-chief, dead. They changed it. I've got the screenshot. I've got the screenshot. And there's actually a point I want to make about this later. Um, But the, the changed headline, the change was, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, austere religious scholar at helm of Islamic State, dies at 48. That's like saying Adolf Hitler, vegetarian painter in charge of Germany, commits suicide. They changed that after a lot of public outrage. They changed that. They changed it from terrorist-in-chief to this, and they changed this to extremist ISIS leader dead. And they came out and they said, we, we should have never, we, we shouldn't have had that headline. We, we changed it as soon as we were made aware of it. But it's pretty telling to me that they changed it from terrorist in chief to austere religious scholar. Who made that change? And they don't want to say, uh, I got some suspicions on what actually happened there. And then to top them, uh, Bloomberg came out with something even more outrageous. I'll tell you about that when we come back. Yes, as the voice says, you can call in. I do take calls, 877-973-7425, 877-973-7425. Bloomberg decided to top the Washington Post. Bloomberg tweeted out, this is their tweet from Bloomberg, Abu Baker al-Baghdadi transformed himself from a little-known teacher of Quranic recitation into the self-proclaimed ruler of of an entity that covers swaths of Syria and Iraq. How innocuous that is. The Washington Post is apologizing for its uh, tweet. Uh, The Post has been delivering stellar coverage of the stealth raid all day long, according to Brian Stutler at CNN. But on the social me- on social media, the newspaper has been blasted for a terrible web headline of it on its obit of al-Baghdadi. The headline briefly called him the austere religious scholar at helm of Islamic State, as opposed to, you know, a murderer. It was adjusted to extremist leader of Islamic State. But the Post admitted the headline should never have read that way. But But here's the thing. Here's the thing. And everybody seems to be missing this. 
the original headline was terrorist in chief. And they changed it from terrorist in chief to austere religious leader, except I have a sneaking suspicion it was the algorithm. Let me explain to you uh, the way a lot of these things work. It was the Huffington Post that originated this, and a lot of media publications have caught on since the Huffington Post came live. They write two headlines, and they send out the two headlines. It's called A-B testing. They put the two headlines up, so some people, half the people will see the headline uh, terrorist-in-chief. The other half will see austere religious cleric. And which one gets the most clicks? And if you click into the story, um, the one that gets the most clicks, that headline becomes locked in by the algorithm. The algorithm decides, oh, this one's generating us more traffic, so we'll go with this one. Well, of course, the austere religious cleric one was getting more headline, getting more clicks because people were outraged by it. If you actually look at the URL of the Washington Post story, what you see is it, uh, the uh, terrorist-in-chief is still the headline. And yet, uh, they decided to focus, uh, change it to austere religious clarity. And I'm pretty sure that was the algorithm. And then after all the outrage, they had to flip it back. After all the outrage, uh, the Washington Post had to say, wait a second, wait a second, we can't do this. We, we got to move it. This is making us look bad. So they changed it. They went in and they changed it to the extremist leader. Um, but I think the algorithm had something to do with that. And I want to talk about the algorithm. I'm not done with the algorithm. I talked about it a little bit on Friday. We're headed towards a civil war and the algorithm is going to get us there. We'll discuss that when we come back. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the second hour of the show. The phone number 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. The algorithmic war is coming. It actually is coming, I think. Well, maybe it's not. Uh, There are ways to stop it. What, What on earth is the algorithmic civil war? Well, you know, on Friday, I talked about a piece at BuzzFeed uh, by Catherine Miller, where she talks about the the 2010s, this decade that we are leaving, has broken our sense of time. And it's broken our sense of time in large part because when you we're so connected to our phones now, and so many of us are connected to social media, be it Snapchat or Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. Uh, TikTok now is all the rage with kids these days. And so much of the content that they show is algorithmically generated. It's not chronologically generated. If you go into, for example, Twitter, uh, you are not going to see initially uh, things that happen in order. You're going to see the things that's getting the most buzz among your friends. The algorithm is designed to keep you um, on the site. For example, my wife... Uh, genuinely gets angry on a near daily basis, if not a multi-hour basis each day with Facebook. My wife genuinely gets angry with Facebook. I have told people at Facebook, my wife gets angry with Facebook. Uh, My wife gets angry with Facebook because uh, when she gets on Facebook and she wants to see something, um, she's not seeing things in chronology. She's seeing things displayed algorithmically. And so she'll see something. She'll accidentally click on something else and try to come back and it refreshes in a way that she can't find what she was looking for. 
and it drives her insane. And she's not alone. This comes up all the time. Uh, it was a lot easier when Facebook was chronological. You could scroll through your timeline on Facebook and get back to something you wanted. The same thing happens with Twitter now. Things are algorithmically displayed uh, based on what they think you want to see as opposed to all the stuff there. It's also true with Instagram. Instagram is my favorite social media outlet. You should follow me on Instagram at E.W. Erickson, E-W-E-R-I-C-K-S-O-N. Follow me on Instagram. I'm not political on Instagram. Instagram also shows you things chronologically. You can see something that happened two days ago and then underneath that something that happened today. Instagram wants to show you the things, the things she wants to see based on you and all your followers and what everyone's looking at. Uh, there is a study done that shows that the rise of teen suicide has gone up pretty significantly since the introduction of the iPhone. And a lot of people say, well, don't blame the iPhone. It actually has more to do with the algorithm than the iPhone. You see, yes, it has made it easier to uh, teen bullying and whatnot has been easier. But also your kids, your kids can now get on Instagram and see all the parties that they didn't even know were happening and they can't escape them because of the algorithm. If it's chronological, your kids would have to scroll back in time to see them. But because it's algorithmic, they're connected to these people. These people are putting these pictures up. These pictures are getting liked by other people they're all connected to. So those are the ones they're going to see the most. And so they get to dwell in Instagram on the party they didn't even know happened with their friends who didn't even tell them about the party. Rates of teen depression are going up. Rates of teen suicide are going up. And it also affects our news. Look at the Washington Post. Here, here's my suspicion. The Washington Post had two headlines for the al-Baghdadi story. Originally, he was called terrorist-in-chief, and it was changed to austere religious cleric. My suspicion is that there was A-B testing because the original URL still has terrorist-in-chief. But there was A-B testing. A-B testing is where you show a group of people two different things, and whichever one gets the most attention, then suddenly everybody sees only that one. And the austere religious cleric headline was getting the most attention because people were hate-clicking it, and so people clicked in and saw it. So the algorithm fixed that as the headline, and the Washington Post had to go change it. Or look at Pete Souza, uh, President Obama's photographer. Uh, he tweeted out that the president uh, was on his golf course during when the raid happened at 3, 3.30 in the afternoon. So how could he, his picture in the situation room was from after 5.30. So what's going on? And a lot of people immediately took that to say, oh, the president must have staged this photo. He wasn't even there for the raid. Well, it turns out that the portion of the raid the president was there for happened between 5 and 6 p.m. The president was in the situation room. He did see it. And the correction from Pete Susan noting the, that the president actually was there, the photo was not staged, that correction from Pete Sousa or update, clarification, however you want to call it, that happened and didn't get nearly as many retweets. I, I have, on more than one occasion, seen people circulate things on Twitter that I then retweet, uh, outrageous stories, and then you find out it happened from two years ago. How did it wind up in my timeline? Someone retweeted it because that person saw it recently in their timeline because it's not chronologically, it's algorithmic. It's designed to lock us in, to keep us engaged, and oftentimes computers have decided through the algorithm the way to keep us engaged is to keep us outraged. And so the outrage builds. So I, I think about Catherine Miller's story from BuzzFeed on Friday and also the George, uh, Georgetown University Battleground Survey that showed the average American, most Americans, think we're headed towards a civil war. If we have a civil war, it's going to be an algorithm-based civil, civil war. 
And what I mean by that is we believe so many of us, not just me, and I do think that that our society seems to be coming unglued. On the left and right, there is a sense that society is becoming unglued, and a lot of it has to do with the algorithms. It has to do with what social media is showing us. In fact, there's study after study after study that shows that the people who are not on social media live happier lives and are less likely to think the nation is coming apart. Think about that for a minute. The less likely you are to be on social media, the more likely you are to live a happy, contented life and to also think the country is doing just fine. You stay on social media, you think the country is coming apart at the seams, you're very unhappy about it, and you're angry. Why? It's not just because you're on social media. It's because the algorithm is showing you the things that will keep you engaged. The algorithm has determined you're most likely to be engaged by being pissed off about something. So the algorithm keeps showing you things to make you mad, to keep you engaged, to share to your friends, to get them engaged by making them mad. And on and on it goes. And pretty soon you're mad at the other side. The other side's mad at you. And you all think the country's coming apart because both sides are trying to ruin everybody. And it's because the algorithm insert into that Russian trolls who are feeding you information. And they really are. We know this from the Mueller report. The president had nothing to do with it. The Russians have just realized they can take advantage of our algorithms on our social media networks to keep us stirred against each other and unfocused on the world. Social media companies, I do think, bear some responsibility for this. I, 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 I give wide latitude to social media companies. They're private facilities that they allow us to come on and use. We essentially are the product, whether they want to admit it or not. Uh, they sell our information to advertisers who then target us with ads. And I'm okay with it. I've learned about some wonderful brands in the last couple of years that I would have never learned, except they were targeting me on Instagram. But the algorithm is what keeps us there. And the algorithm, the refusal to live a chronological life is a problem. The algorithm feeds the fire. The screens we're connected to make it worse. You can't escape bad news. Bad news is there to inflame you. Kids on Instagram and Snapchat, they can't escape their friends having a good time without them. It leads to their de depression. You see the perfect lives of so many people on Instagram. Uh, my, If my camera, I'm live streaming on Facebook, if my camera could zoom out, you people would see the absolute pigsty that my office is. Every time I clean it up, I go out of town, and when I come back, my family has piled everything in the office that's come in, the mail and stuff. It all just piles up, and I finally just got fed up with it. And so I've just, I haven't cleaned my office in, in months. I haven't cleaned my office. There are piles and piles of books, the leaning tower of books, ready to tip over at any moment. Mail piled up. There may be a bill in there somewhere. I don't know. Drives me crazy. My life is a messy, messy life, and I try to on this radio program and on online at The Resurgent, on Instagram, on Twitter and Facebook, I try to show some of that, but maybe not enough. A lot of people live perfectly curated lives on Instagram, and you forget that it's not real. It's curated. But then the algorithm makes sure to show you other perfectly curated lives, and you don't see the mess. So you begin to think that your life is messy and everybody else's life is perfect when that's not true. Your kids are more vulnerable to it than you because you get to a point in life where you do realize that uh, life is a messy thing and people who are showing you only the perfect on Instagram have real lives and their life is just as messy as yours. They probably have a house that's covered in cat hair or dog hair. They probably got dirty dishes in the sink. None of it is perfect. They only do that on social media to make you believe a lie. 
then there's the other aspect of it. You and I have, I'm sure both experienced this. I mentioned it. You find something old that recirculates on social media. It whips you into a frenzy. You share it. It turns out it's something old. Well, now you've got journalists who are going in and finding old stuff to whip people into a new frenzy, which is just telling people there's no reason to evolve. There's no reason to grow up. There's no reason to improve. There's no reason to get better because the media is going to find a tweet from you when you were 12 years old and destroy your life for it. Look at the college athletes who routinely see reporters often from USA Today go back in their timeline from years ago when they were in high school or junior high, find something they put up that would offend people in today's sensibilities when they were talking with their friends and suddenly their career is over, their life is ruined, their their great award is now tarnished because they said something when they were 12. Or look at the guy who was raising money for charity. He had the sign. He was on on, uh, ESPN. He was seen wanting beer money. He raised over a million dollars. He gave it to charity. Anheuser-Busch was going to partner with him until a reporter from um, the the, um, Des Moines Register found a tweet from when he was barely out of puberty and used it to destroy the guy. And then that guy, in, in turn, got blown up for doing very much the same thing. Lost his job. People canceling themselves by online destructive behavior. You you couple the algorithm with cancel culture and you've got something very, very dangerous. You've got bombs, some of them perhaps physically, ready to explode in the society as the nation feels like it's coming apart. You know, ironically, one of the, the areas of the country that might actually be best served right now uh, to avoid this is Northern California. In Northern California, there's no power. They're having to live in the dark. They're having to live in in a primitive age. Uh, The power company there spent so much money trying to comply with with green energy initiatives. They didn't spend any money on upgrading their power lines and maintaining their power lines. It was either uh, fines for not complying with green energy or spend the money to keep their lines up. They chose not to be fined. Well, now the lines are falling apart. The place is burning down and everybody's had their power cut to avoid sparks from the power lines because they don't want to be liable for causing fires up there in in the conditions right now. And the fires are raging nonetheless. But they don't have cell phones now. They don't have the Internet. Their power is out. Maybe they can escape from the algorithm. You know, there actually is a solution to this. There is a solution to the algorithm. And it's to turn off your phone and your laptop live life chronologically in society. I mentioned the other day, and forgive me for sounding repetitious, but I think it all flows together well that that Scripture, whether you believe or not, it's good advice. Seek the welfare of the city in which you live. Seek the welfare of the city in which you're in exile. There you'll find your welfare. You're not going to find your welfare on Facebook or on Instagram or on Twitter or Snapchat or TikTok. You're not. You're not going to do it. Your city doesn't have an algorithm. Your city has something worse than an algorithm. Your city has these things called human beings, and they are duplicitous creatures who can make you smile as much as they can stab you in the back, but they're real, and the algorithm isn't, and you should probably get to know some. Beyond the avatars that you yourself see on Facebook, the the user IDs that you've come to know, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, you name it, I'm E.W. Erickson. Here I'm Eric Erickson. This is my radio show. You're living chronologically with me. I'm thinking off the top of my head. I I don't have some sort of uh, prescribed written monologue here. This is all me. These are my thinkings. I, I have something I wrote this morning that I'm kind of riffing off of here right now, but it's chronological. 
I'm not putting in the order of the show the things that I think will be designed to best keep you and, and excite you and bring you back. I'm putting in the show the headlines in the order of the things I think you need to know. And I think you need to know that screen time actually is drawing us closer to violence in this country. Screens are doing it. Screens are increasing teen suicide. Screens are increasing depression among people. Screens are increasing all sorts of bad things. And I'm a fan of screens. I've got three in front of me. I've got an iPhone right here. I've got an Apple Watch. I've got my iPad in the other room. I love my screens, and even I am finding I've got to unplug. It's not doing us well. And the friends on our screens, they're not going to bring us a meal if we need it, but the person next door might. Our screens are not going to cure homelessness, but you might be able to in your local community solve the problem or at least alleviate the problem. We see the media pushing stories designed for clickbait. The media depends on clicks these days. And so the media A-B tests headlines to generate the most clicks. The most clicks are typically generated by hate clicks. Hate clicks uh, breed traffic. Traffic creates money for the media. So the media is uh, pushing hate clicks. The media is pushing clickbait. The media wants you on their sites enraged all the time because that's what's going to generate them revenue. Think about that. We have an entire American media ecosystem right now that generally is designed for clickbait. And clickbait is designed most often to make you hate something or find something ridiculous so that you will click through and share it with your friends and say, look at these idiots. Is it any wonder the nation seems more and more divided? Is it any wonder the average American, according to Georgetown University's polling, thinks we're two-thirds of the way towards a civil war? If we get to one, God forbid, if we get to one, it'll be the algorithm that did it. When internet companies decided they needed clickbait, clickbait decided it needed algorithms, and algorithms decided it needed to take you out of chronology so you no longer live with yesterday is yesterday, today is today, and tomorrow is tomorrow, but with yesterday, today, and tomorrow all blended together in some hodgepodge nonsense that's just designed to pick you off, get you mad, and make you click. Turn off the screens. Live life, not algorithmically. Can I take a, a random aside here um, and welcome? If, if you want to call in the program, you're more than welcome to 877-973-7425, 877-973-7425. Um, more than happy to take your phone calls. That translates to 877-97-ERIC, E-R-I-C-K. Uh, so Halloween is on Thursday. My son wants to be Marshmallow. Now, you, like me, I, I am in my, I get to say early 40s. I thought I was 45, and I'm not. I'm younger than that. <laughs> um, but if you're like me, and your child wants to be Marshmallow, you're probably thinking of the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man from Ghostbusters, which is my son's favorite movie, by the way. I forgot how much language there was in that movie, and I showed it to him a while back, and, and he absolutely loved it. Um and I just assumed he wanted to be the, the Stay Puft Marshmallow. No, he wants to be Marshmallow. Have y'all heard of this guy? He's a, a DJ. Very famous DJ now. He wears a, a, a helmet that looks like a marshmallow. A giant marshmallow. And he calls himself Marshmallow. And he's apparently very famous. And I can, I'm can i assuming that everyone is going as Marshmallow. I am, I am dad years old now. I had no idea that this marshmallow thing was even a thing. I had to ask on social media and all my, my hipster young millennial friends were telling me, oh yeah, he's awesome. I had no idea who this guy is. 
And I'm guessing that every kid in America is going as marshmallow because everything was sold out. We had to find some woman on Etsy who makes these marshmallow helmets and get her to ship us a helmet so he could go as marshmallow. My wife made a whole like turntable with lights that light up and all uh, for, for marshmallow. She's, oh, I don't know how much money she spent on all the little lights and stuff at Hobby Lobby. Um, but now they're thinking it's going to rain. It, it may rain on things on Halloween. And people are like, are we going to reschedule Halloween? When are kids going to be able to go trick? You go trick or treat it on Halloween. We have these things. They, they, they are uh, rubber or plastic. They're in a dome shape. They have a big handle you hold on to. They're called an umbrella. You take the umbrella with you when you go trick-or-treating. I'm not letting trick-or-treaters on my property on a Saturday or Sunday. In fact, I'm not even going to be here. I'm not rescheduling Halloween. Halloween is October 31st. If you want candy from my house, you show up on October 31st. I think I bought something like three or $400 worth of candy again this year. Last year, we ran out of candy. I bought $400 worth of candy last year, and we ran out. Now, we weren't given individual pieces. We were given some handfuls of candy, but still, that was a heck of a lot of candy to run out of. And I do buy the good stuff. I I, I buy the candy bars. No, no, not the big size. I don't buy the full-size candy bars. But the mid-size ones, not the teeny tiny ones, but the mid-size candy bars. But people, I, I've got next door is is the, the latest greatest app. Um, it is Facebook for your neighborhood. Essentially, you get on next door. You have to be mailed a postcard. This is actually kind of the neat little concept of it. You're mailed a postcard, and you can sign up for next door based on getting the postcard. Your neighbors recommend and, and subscribe you. <laughs> yeah, buddy, my in this marshmallow thing, you're going full get off my lawn. I am. I have no idea who this marshmallow guy is. But anyway, you get on next door uh, and you can see which houses in your neighborhood are giving out candy and people are all upset about Halloween and whether or not it's going to be rained out in our area. And where are we going to go for Halloween if it's raining? How are the kids going to get candy? Go take them to the McDonald's playground or the Chick-fil-A playground if you can't get candy. Good Lord, people. Why do we need the Internet to tell us how to live? Another example of turn off your screens. Uh, Yes, get off my lawn with some of this stuff. Good gracious. All right we got to go into other stuff when we come back. Uh, Here in Georgia, the Democrats are going to the Tyler Perry studio to have their debate. So much for the suburbs, suckers. I I do want to point out, if you're in Georgia, um, there are municipal elections... And in addition to there being municipal elections, you've got a lot of sploss. I know there's an election in in the Floyd County area. Um, I believe there's something I saw in Clark County uh, and in Habersham County. Just uh, pay attention. Early voting um, would be this week uh, for an election next week. So um, check in with your local board of elections. See if there's something on your ballot for next week. Be a responsible citizen. Go vote. Uh, municipal elections happen in Georgia in odd-numbered years. This is 2019, so there are municipal elections happening around the state. Uh, and SPLOS, lots of SPLOS. I know in Bibb County um, there is a SPLOS. I didn't even know it until two weeks ago. There's a splossed vote. Uh, Man, they kept that one uh, quiet. Okay, Uh, let's see. I'm going to go to the phones. I'm going to go to Sam in Charlotte, North Carolina. Sam, welcome. Thank you very much. What's going on? Glad to be here. I had a question about the the algorithms. Um, I was wondering if, if we're at a point where people like the Instagram people making their perfect lives are sort of copying or emulating 
what the algorithm would do? Does that mean we're past the point where something can be done? Where unplugging from a screen is helpful to anyone besides ourselves? That is a great question, Sam. Thanks very much for the phone call from Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, You know, as a matter of fact, uh, that actually, there was an article in Wired Magazine. Gosh, was it this month's issue of Wired? There's there's actually a a question about that precise thing. Uh, Maybe it was last month's Wired on how people are now becoming the algorithm, that people are changing in their cadence and how they dress uh, things that are popular because of the algorithm, the vacations people are doing. Uh, yeah, I do think actually, though, that if you if you get past the algorithm and it breaks down, uh, you turn off the screens and you pay more attention to your local life, uh, then you, things have a way of reverting back to the mean, so to speak. So the algorithm itself uh, is controlling people's lives. And who knows? You, you may conform to the algorithm. But again, think about how the algorithm works. Uh, the algorithm is designed to keep you online and keep you enraged and keep you engaged. But that's only the mental picture of it from what you're fed online. Once you stop going online on the news aspect of it, uh, you may still dress in the awful stuff you see the the Instagram celebrities uh, dressing in, but you're not going to be as mad anymore when you pay attention to your local community. You know, there was actually a study out, uh, oh gosh, six months or so ago, um, who was it? Uh, Pure Gallup one. It, it's always either Pure Gallup. Uh, that people who rely on their local newspapers tend to live happier, healthier lives uh, than those who rely on the internet for their news. Think about that for a minute. Um, the one is, wh- where's your local newspaper come? And, and fewer and fewer people subscribe. In fact, my local newspaper is half the size it was just four years ago. As an aside, I'm going to deviate here. So I've got a local column. I've got a nationally syndicated column, which you should get in your paper. But I also have one in the Macon Telegraph. I I live in Macon. I realize my flagship station is WGAU in Athens. I live in Macon through the miracle of modern technology. We get the show to Athens. I I do the show from a studio in Macon, typically out of my house. Uh, And I live in Macon, and I have a column in my local newspaper, which had to stop taking my column a month ago. Do you know why my local newspaper had to stop taking my local column in my local newspaper? Anybody want to guess? I was doing it for free. Y'all, I have written this newspaper column since 2013. That's right. I have written a newspaper column since 2013. Actually, no, I take that back. 2011, it was 2011 because I was still on city council in Macon when I wrote it. So 2011, so I've done this column since 2011 and I've done it for free. Every single week since 2011, I have written a column in the local newspaper, 590 words, and I've done it for free. And the newspaper decided it had to stop taking the column last month because I was doing it for free. Not because there were complaints, not because they didn't like the content, but because I was doing it for free. They finally did come back two weeks ago and they say, hey, we, we still we would love to take your column, but we're going to have to pay you for it. Oh, OK, uh, I'm happy to take your money. I was happy to do it for free just to support my local newspaper. I like local newspapers. A buddy of mine tells me that the small county newspapers are actually doing well by and large. Some of them are winding down, the ones that are that are too big. 
uh, are scaling back to become weekly papers. Those that are weekly papers tend to be doing okay. And, and in large part, it's because people who live in their local community want to be connected to their local community. Uh, they find out about their local news. They see their kids and grandkids and the 4-H or the, the uh, FCA or what have you in local high schools. They, they get the speeches from the valedictorians. They see the obituaries for the local area. They want to be engaged. It's the papers that, that have spread out too much that cover regions within states that are doing worse or or um, cover multiple states or, or nationwide or doing well. Even USA Today is now going to scale back its print process, apparently. But people who subscribe to the local papers actually tend to live healthier, happier lives that they get the bulk of their news there. And the reason is because they get their news in the morning, they read the newspaper, and they go on with through the day. They may tune into talk radio like like here, uh, give you the headlines, but it's they're not online staring at the algorithm all day, getting them more and more enraged. It's a fascinating dynamic. All, all, all of that off a call from North Carolina. The phone number here, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, we do need to talk about Governor Kemp here in Georgia, uh, the ethylene oxide situation, and the Democrats coming to Georgia. The Democrats... A lot of people were thinking the Democrats, they're going to do an MSNBC debate in Georgia. Rachel Maddow leading them with Andrea Mitchell and several others, all female cast and crew from MSNBC coming to Georgia. People were thinking they would go to the suburbs because why? The suburbs are in play. The 6th and 7th District are both highly targeted by the Democrats. Uh, Lucy McBath, a Democrat, won the 6th District this past year. The Republicans would like to take it back. Instead, they're going to Tyler Perry Studio. He's got the facility. It's an impressive facility. I have not taken the tour of it, but it is a massive facility. And they're going there. He's got the he's got the crew. By the way, so I'm sure at this debate, the fetal heartbeat legislation in Georgia is going to come up. I, I guarantee you that all of the Democrats on stage will denounce it, which is one reason I don't know that it needs to be asked, but it's a virtue signal for the Democrats. They will come to Georgia and denounce Georgia and it's fetal heartbeat legislation. Um, some of them will say, this is why we must engage in Georgia and not withdraw, but others, I'm sure, will call for a boycott or support the boycott. I would be shocked if it did not come up. I mean, this is virtue signaling 101. It, it makes sense that they would come up, uh, that it would come up. But I got to say, uh, there are a lot of pundits and prognosticators and politicians out there really upset the Democrats aren't going to the swing districts. Uh, that, that they're not going to Georgia 6 and they're not going to Georgia 7, that they are going to Tyler Perry's studio. They're, they're giving a rich man more money to go to a studio. I don't have a problem with it. Who next year is going to go to the ballot, going to go vote and say, hmm, I'm really upset the Democrats didn't go to the 6th Congressional District and they went to Tyler Perry's studio instead, so I'm going to vote Republican. Really? Who's going to do that? Um, no one's going to care. And, and again, I mean, I can tie all of this back to the algorithm as well. Our news moves so fast these days that you can't keep up. I mean, it was only a few months ago that the Democrats were complaining about concentration camps on the southern border. Whatever happened to the concentration camps on the southern border? I mean, Greta Thunberg was only a few weeks ago. Do you remember Greta Thunberg? It sounds like it, it, it feels like she was five years ago. She was last month. The news moves so fast, nobody can keep up. Who a month from now is even going to remember what was said on stage at a Democratic debate at Tyler Perry Studio in Georgia? Which as an aside, and, and this is where I was headed, I, there are so many thoughts running in my head at the moment. Again, this show is not scripted. It is all off the top of my head, for better or for worse. Um, 
they're going to bring up fetal heartbeat, I'm sure. It, it, it's classic virtue signaling. Some of them may even support the debate. But I was talking to a guy who is connected in Hollywood and does a lot of leasing and, and management of the Georgia tax credit. For those of you listening outside of Georgia, Georgia has an unlimited tax credit, which is why the film industry has essentially made Georgia uh, Hollywood of the South. More films are now produced in Georgia than anywhere outside of California. And it has a lot to do with the film tax credit. Even with the supposed boycott of the state by Hollywood celebrities, Georgia is um, has more of Hollywood pressure. Now, I actually think it's a bad idea because I think what we're seeing is it's changing the character of the state. And the state is drifting to the left as more and more people from Hollywood move here with their secular atheist progressive values. And I think that's a bad thing. Uh, but uh, at the same time, it does bring a lot of money into the state. And arguably, it brings a lot of money into the state. And frankly, there are a lot of people in the film industry here in Georgia who are very conservative and they're okay with fetal heartbeat legislation. I was talking to uh, somebody who's who's uh, highly involved in films in Georgia who was telling me he was perfectly okay to lose a business because uh, he supports the unborn. But for all the talk of the boycott, it turns out that the boycott, this, this guy who was talking to me says it, the boycott's impossible. In fact, he's already negotiating contracts on space that's not yet even built in Georgia for sound stages because there are more sound stage or Netflix has more pending projects than sound stage space in the world. Ponder that for a moment. Netflix has to come up with a way to combat Disney and Apple and Hulu, uh, Amazon Prime, uh, NBC, CBS. Um, AT&T now with its HBO Max stuff. Uh, they, they've got so much uh, that they've got to compete against now. Netflix is essentially buying up every scripted series imaginable. And they got to do something. And so part of what Netflix is doing is they're renting all the soundstage space. If nothing else, they're keeping all the competitors from being able to make their shows because Netflix has so much in the queue. Netflix is dominating. Amazon is actually having to go out and contract with people to build soundstage space, and they want to build it in Georgia because of the tax credit. It's making it economically viable for these production companies to expand their space in Georgia, and Netflix wants to expand its space, and in expanding its space, Netflix still needs more. So how can you boycott Georgia and the Georgia film industry when there's not enough space on the planet for even Netflix by itself to produce all of its movies and shows. And on top of Netflix, you have Amazon, you have Hulu, you have uh, Apple, you have Disney, you've got CBS is coming out with a brand new, it's already got a streaming service and it's going to expand. Um, NBC Universal is going to expand a streaming service. Uh, who else am I missing? Man, there, there are a bunch of, of streaming services that are coming on out there. So it's going to be real hard to launch this boycott. And Georgia stands to make a windfall from these Hollywood studios. Now, speaking of business in Georgia, um, our regulators are cracking down now on the sterogenics facility in Cobb County and the Becton Dickinson plant in Newton County. Covington, one of the largest employers in the county. Outside of the county, I think it is the um, BD whatever facility in Newton County. is probably the largest um employer over there now for those of you who don't know what the story is about uh these two plants uh emit ethylene oxide and ethylene oxide the epa has determined are carcinogens 
they can give you cancer. Long-term exposure can give you cancer. Not short-term exposure, long-term exposure. And part of the problem here now is that these plants, um, they're still emitting the carcinogen. The state had been trying to get voluntary compliance from them. And the state was having a real hard time getting voluntary compliance. So the state is coming in and they're shutting down the facilities. It's a big role reversal by the Kemp administration. The Kemp administration in Georgia was trying to work with these companies. They didn't want to put, put them out of business because you put them out of business, you put people out of work. And in Newton County, Covington, Georgia, it's the largest private employer in the county. You don't want to shut it down because you put half the county out of work. Well, the people who work at the plant are starting to get a little bit concerned as well. And the regulators have now shifted their mindset on this, and they've come in and they've clamped down. And both companies now have had to stop production. Now, the, the facilities, just so you understand, they're, they're medical sterilization facilities. Ethylene oxide can seek, uh, sink into, or seep into is the word I'm looking for, seep into sealed plastic packaging. So you put a bunch of uh, medical devices in sealed plastic, and then you put them in a container with ethylene oxide. The ethylene oxide can be absorbed into the plastic containers and sterilize what's inside them. Uh, I've got Invisalign braces, for example, uh, and they're in sealed plastic. i got to uh, unseal the plastic to get them out. Now, you put them in the, the wrappers, and then you put the wrappers in the ethylene oxide containers. The ethylene oxide sterilizes the braces. They're the little plastic retainer braces. Uh, I've got some in right now, as a matter of fact. Um, and uh, it sterilizes. You can do it with syringes. You can do it with all sorts of stuff. You go to Publix or Kroger and you get the little syringes for your kids when you've got to give them uh, oral antibiotics. Uh, that is inside plastic that's been placed in ethylene oxide. The problem is that ethylene oxide, long-term exposure, we now know can cause cancer. And these companies were releasing emissions and there was an increased cancer rate in the areas. And it's been kind of problematic. And the government wanted to work with the companies. They couldn't find accommodation, so they've shut the plants down now. It's going to be interesting to see the fallout from this economically over time. Did y'all see the video last night of the, the guy who <laughs> got nailed by the baseball of the World Series? He was holding two beers, had these two um, tall boy Bud Lights, and he didn't want to drop them, saw the ball coming, and just basically braced to get hit by the baseball been over. I feel bad for the guy, but wow, uh, that's commitment to hold it on to your beard. Uh, Paul and Mableton, you're going to be next on the Eric Erickson Show. Welcome. Hey, Eric. Good to talk to you. Love the show. Thank you. Listen, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on how the controversy involving the NBA and China fits into um, what we might call the wokeness narrative here in the United States. You know, this is actually a great question. I'm glad you called in because I was going to talk about it Uh, now. There's actually a story out today that Marco Rubio in the Senate and several of the Democratic senators are coming together to pass a law to prohibit U.S. uh, firms from investing in China for government uh, employee pension and retirement funds. And the reason is because they're afraid this is going to be another angle where China is going to try to disrupt the United States uh, through owning pension and and stock funds for government employees and say, uh, try to disrupt the market and and hijack people's retirement if they don't behave like China. Uh, It's interesting in woke culture in that essentially the authoritarianism from wokeness uh, is very much what's happening in China. And you can actually get a sense of this from some of the NBA players who are the most woke and uh, what's his name the uh, the coach uh, the Clippers coach who is super woke uh, taxed the president regularly and yet can't bring themselves to criticize China at all 
they don't want to because they they tend to line up with China. Uh, NBA, Newt Gingrich, of all people, um, you're in Mableton. You, Gingrich used to represent that area. He's come out and defended the NBA, saying you can't expect one American corporation to stand up to China. Why can't you? Why can't we expect American corporations to stand up to China? Why can't we? I, I think we should. I think Gingrich is wrong on this. Everyone should stand up to China. Everyone should stand up and, and hold China to account on this. Uh, to, to say one corporation can't, Facebook is. Facebook won't do business in China. The NBA doesn't have to do business in China. Putting profits ahead of what's right uh, is bad, and I don't think they should do it. Um, I, I, I think that what we're seeing is the hypocrisy of wokeness, though, in how the woke people are behaving. Speaking of wokeness, uh, this is so ridiculous. Um, so the the creators of Game of Thrones, the TV show, not not uh, George R. R. Martin, but um, Benioff and Weiss. Uh, I, I watched Game of Thrones. I, I really like Game of Thrones. I was disappointed in the last season because it was rushed. I felt like they crash landed it to get out of it, and they crash landed it to get out of it in large part because they had a big series they wanted to do with HBO uh, relating to an alternative civil war where the South won. And woke culture got extremely livid with Benioff and Weiss for wanting to do that and show black people still enslaved. It was going to be an entire meta commentary on how the Confederacy was bad and slavery was bad. But who cares about what they intended to do with it? It, it was it was woke culture got offended. And so they got mad at HBO. They wanted to crash land and get out as quickly as they can because they didn't like the direction everything was going. So they did. And I, I think the, the last season was very flawed. If you read the, the Game of Thrones books, you can understand how Bran becomes the, the, the king. But um, if you watch the TV series, you couldn't get a sense of it. And it was unfortunate. But they, they did a panel at a film festival in Austin, Texas uh, over the weekend. And they're being lit up by woke culture because... They admit very openly that their first pilot was bad. It was really bad. In fact, it hasn't been seen, and uh, it has been routinely criticized by those who have seen it as to how horrible it was. Several of the existing characters in Game of Thrones were in there and repackaged, and uh, they it, it, it was just it, it didn't go over well, put it to you that way. Along the way, uh, they admitted in Austin that they didn't know what they were doing. And their original scripts were too short. HBO forced them to extend the scripts. Extending the scripts turned out to be useful for them because they got to know the characters better. It forced them to. Eventually, the actors fell in love with their own characters, and the actors helped shape the characters in the show. It was a very interesting conversation about two guys who loved Game of Thrones, were way in over their heads, uh, had to convince George R.R. R. Martin to give it to him, had to convince HBO to let them do it, didn't really know what they were doing, and learned on the job and produced a highly successful TV series. In fact, the last TV series that the entire world watched together. We will not see TV series like Game of Thrones again, probably. And the reason being is because when Game of Thrones started, uh, live streaming and Netflix dropping TV shows all at once didn't really exist. It was around for eight years. And in those eight years, people began to watch it, embrace it, love it. And they all showed up on Sunday night to watch it. They didn't wait for it all to drop at once. And now people are going back and watching it. 
but they're getting destroyed by woke culture, claiming that essentially they're admitting to white privilege and only privileged white guys like them could get away with doing what they did. And, and how dare they do that? And that explains everything bad about the series. And there's no winning with woke culture. There is no grace in wokeness. And China has no grace. In fact, China's bad at giving money to charity, too. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, if you want to call in, 877-97-ERIC. That's 877-973-7425. I, I, I want to, let me see if I can route this. It's very interesting. I've got, so I'm on Apple Music. I'm not on Spotify. Well, I am on Spotify at EW Erickson. I don't use it really. I use Apple Music. Um, but I looked, and you can see what your friends are listening to, and I've got about a dozen different friends of mine, a whole lot of white people, listening to Kanye West. Uh, and I thought this song was... right. I heard it on, on Twitter on Friday. People were talking about the song, and I couldn't believe it was real. Uh, yeah, it apparently is a thing. Let's see if I can fast forward here. Yeah, this is a real song on the newest album from Kanye West. The album is Jesus is King, and this is Closed on Sunday is the name of the song. We may have to add this to the bumper music for the show. <laughs> Close on Sunday. You my Chick-fil-A. Close on Sunday. You my Chick-fil-A. Hold the selfies. Put the gram away. Get your family, y'all hold hands and pray. When you got daughters, always keep them safe. Watch out for vipers, don't let them indoctrinate. Closed on Sunday. The, yeah, that's that's Kanye West. It's an ode to Chick-fil-A, essentially, except it's also got theologically accurate lyrics. And people don't know what to do with this. On the left, they are beside themselves. Uh, white progressive media reviewers are saying that Kanye, he's put on a Make America Great Again hat. And he's totally polluted and you need to stop listening to him and everything is, is problematic. Um, it, it's, it's amazing to see the anger on the left over Kanye West embracing Jesus. Now, the story I have been told, and it's in the press now, is that he he, he felt some level of calling. And yes, I am on a national radio show now talking about Kanye West uh, and Jesus. There, there you go. That that's the sort of show you get here. <laughs> um, so he apparently he he felt something was amiss in his life, and he decided it was Jesus. Um, he had some essentially um, a driving to embrace faith. And in so doing, he went to a pastor in Southern California who went to the Master Seminary. That is a Southern Baptist Seminary in California that is uh, led by John MacArthur. Uh, it was the Los Angeles Baptist Seminary. They changed the name to the Master Seminary a number of years ago. The guy's from Georgia, actually. The pastor who helped Kanye uh, in his walk with Christ is from Georgia. I, I've actually now encountered a couple people who were in youth group with him back in the day from the Athens area, I believe. And, um, so he's out there. Kanye started going to church, would sneak into the back, uh, listen to sermons and then leave the, the, 
The pastor is very no-nonsense, a Southern Baptist who isn't going to nuance the faith, uh, and walked with Kanye, explained to him the gospel message, and uh, multiple, oh, this is all to say, several friends of mine, you, you know, one of the, the sad things, side things, not sad things, side things I do is seminary. Uh, I have been in Reformed Theological Seminary. I now preach on Sundays on occasion. Uh, happy to come to your church. And um, i I gotten to be tied into a lot of the evangelical leaders in the country, been speaking at different conferences, preaching at conferences, uh, speaking with them. Uh, and I, I know several of the guys who have reached out to the pastor who know the pastor and think highly of the pastor. And, and by all accounts, this appears to be legit. Now there's an underlying skepticism in that is Kanye West just looking for a new market. He put on the make America great again hat. Uh, did he burn bridges with other people? Did he have to do this? I mean, listen, I heard the interview he did with what's his name on Apple music. Uh, and he, he looks, everything sounds legit. He got sanctification and justification, uh, right. That, uh, justification is by faith. It comes first. And then you go through a period of sanctification. He got that right. He got the nuances, right? Uh, he sounds like he did, you know, when Mitt Romney was running for president in 2012, Mitt Romney often sounded like someone who learned conservatism as a second language. He got, uh, conservatism from Rosetta stone. Kanye West sounds like an authentic new believer, uh, excited about the faith. This is one of the things Paul says in scriptures, you don't put new believers in charge because, uh, in, in the, you, one, you got to assess the authenticity and the depth of knowledge and, and the zeal of it. Uh, new believers sometimes are way more zealous than the people who have been there, done that, and and they're they're Christians, but they they've seen the new young pups. Uh, and Kanye sounds like the new young eager believer diving in, and you want to make sure it's authentic. You don't want him to amass a following of people and then he leads them astray. God, of course, is in charge. You can say that, but what I I find so interesting in all of these things now is the lyrics and the theological depth. Of his lyrics, as someone who takes faith seriously, and is is interested in a lot of um, a lot of Christian theology and pop culture, and frankly, how a lot of Christian artists do a bad job of it, to see a contemporary hip hop rap recording artist come in and be explicitly Christian in his lyrics is a cultural phenomenon that in an increasingly secular society, we're probably not going to see the media fully embrace this as we would have a decade ago. The media has already moved on in most cases from this. But within a lot of Christian communities, they're paying attention. And in the black community, which is still a community very grounded in faith, they're paying attention to one of the, the stars is embracing Christianity. Well, let me just, this Chick-fil-A song, I, I find some of it silly. Yeah, closed on Sunday, you my Chick-fil-A, you're my number one with the lemonade. Listen to this, though. Raise our sons, train them in the faith, through temptations, make sure they're wide awake, Follow Jesus, listen and obey. No more living for the culture, we nobody's slave. No more living for the culture. A pretty impressive pronouncement from someone in this city. And the song goes on, stand up for my home. Even if I take this walk alone, I bow down to the king upon the throne. My life is his, I'm no longer my own. I pray to God that he'll strengthen my hand. They will think twice stepping onto my land. 
I draw the line that's written in the sand. Try me and you will see that I ain't playing. Nah, back off my family. Move your hands. I got my weapons in the spirit's land. I, Jezebel, don't even stand a chance. Jezebel don't even stand a chance. Uh, Okay. Shout out for the Jezebel reference. And then, let's see, um, there's the Follow God song. Riding on a white bike, feeling like Excite Bike, pressing on the gas supernova for a nightlight, screaming at my dad, and he told me it ain't Christ-like, but nobody never tell you when you're being like Christ, only ever seeing me, only when they need me. Like if Tyler Perry made a movie for BET, searching for a deity, now you want to see it free. Now you want to see if we, let's just see if three a piece. tell me what your life, I, this isn't my thing. It's not my thing. I'm, I, I'm not a big rap hip hop fan, but I did listen to this and I went back and I read the lyrics for all of the songs and it actually is rather staggering to me to see that he has in some ways gotten the theology better than a lot of people out there who should be getting the theology right these days. And that makes it a cultural moment. That actually makes it a a pretty significant cultural moment, I think. Um, When you see a secular artist like this doing something like this, crossing over. You know what it used to be? What it used to be was Christmas albums. All of the secular artists would make Christmas albums. And oftentimes the Christmas songs, they would throw in one or two. Well, everybody's got a silent night. Oh, and Laura, did you hear that on... um, Satellite radio, they're starting the they're starting the Christmas channels, I think, this week. I was in home or I was in Lowe's two weeks ago, and they've already got out all the they don't have any Halloween stuff. They've got all of their Christmas stuff out already. Now, Christmas and Thanksgiving are actually pretty close together this year. Um, it's actually the shortest window between Thanksgiving and Christmas we've had in several years. And so retailers are gearing up for that, the Black Friday rush and all of that. But they've already got out uh, the Christmas decorations and all the stores because of it. And they're starting the Christmas music this week. I am not starting Christmas music on this program. In fact, I will play Christmas music on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, and that's probably it. Um but they're commercializing it. And you see repeatedly that the um, you see secular artists come out with Christmas albums. In fact, um, hang on a second. Let, let's so you know they've got the new um, they have now uh, redone Apple the Apple music stuff and I'm not used to it yet. but, uh, if you go into their categories for music, what you find is you name the singer, whether it's it's Paul McCartney or Cher or Lady Gaga or Taylor Swift, they've all got Christmas songs. And those Christmas songs are oftentimes the secular songs. The Baby It's Cold Outside or The Winter Wonderland or the ever-popular Jingle Bells. Or Santa Claus is coming to town. Rarely do you have um, Silent Night. That's probably the most common. Or Oh Holy Night. That one on occasion, particularly if they're a country star, they'll they'll um, they will demonstrate the vocal range they have by doing Silent uh, Holy Night. Uh, but you don't really get more than that. Maybe the Drummer Boy, which actually 
isn't necessarily a, a, a deep hymn. And they put out their Christmas albums, and that's their way to connect with the Christian market. And the Christian market itself has become more and more secularized. Um, you know, people are, they're okay. Contrary to what a lot of, a lot of people think, uh, a lot of these, these stars and progressive culture are okay saying Merry Christmas these days because Christmas has become so secularized. I was in London a couple of years ago and I, I was there around Christmas time. It was just after Thanksgiving. I was in an, a debate in, at Oxford university and my wife and I spent a few days in London traveling around a beautiful day. I mean, it looked like something out of Harry Potter, to be honest in Harry Potter, they celebrate Christmas. But there's no nativity, there's no cross, and there's no Jesus. And you saw that walk in the streets of London. There's no cross, there's no nativity, there's no Jesus. There are Christmas trees and Christmas lights, and there are little deer and snow and and children and presents and wrapping and stockings and fire, and there's no Jesus. And that's where we are with celebrity culture. And here comes Kanye West. Uh, It is totally, um, it is totally, a totally Christian sectarian album and the media has moved on quickly from it. When Kanye West launched his last album, the media fixated on it for more than a week. What did it mean? Was it any good? Uh, what was he talking about? What was this, his, his big shift? He, he's, he's flirted with Donald Trump. How did, how did this all come to be? And now it's, Okay, Kanye West has an album out. It's Christian. He wore a MAGA hat. Let's move on. Nobody buy it. And I suspect within small circles where it's meaningful in this country, people are going to be buying it. They're going to be buying it, uh, and they're going to be listening to it. And a lot of white people who've never listened to or don't like rap music are suddenly going to be buying it and listening to it. And within some communities where people are questioning and wondering and thinking, what do we do? It's going to have an impact, a subtle impact. Now, the question is, is it authentic? And I don't know. Maybe he really is just looking for a new audience. I don't know that Kanye West is authentically converted, but that's between him and God. What I know is he's produced an album with authentically Christian, theologically correct lyrics, and that a contemporary major artist has done something like that is in and of itself something notable. Does it last? Does it stick? Is this just commercialism? Is this trying to find a new audience? I have no idea. But for now, it may not be my cup of tea music-wise, but I'll certainly take it. I love this story. Uh, A part-time umpire has filed a lawsuit Friday alleging that a South Carolina mayor had him fired over an argument they had in August about a call at a recreational kickball match. Uh, Gray and Moran Jr. alleged he was removed from his position as an umpire after he made a call against the son of Mox Corner Mayor Michael Locklear during a game he officiated. Locklear and his son were playing for a recreational kickball team called Recreational Hazard and were playing offense in the bottom of the eighth inning when the call happened. According to the lawsuit, Locklear's son was running to home plate when the when the opposing team, the Toe Jammers, tagged him in the back of the leg with the ball. The mayor shouted as he approached Grayan. He was past the plate. Are you stupid? The lawsuit said. Grayan did not respond to the disparaging question from the mayor and just stared at him, believing him to be just another kickball player, passionate about an umpire call of out. The mayor allegedly kept yelling at the umpire until Moran Jr. told him that he was representing the town and should calm down. I own this town, Locklear allegedly responded. You won't have to worry about representing the town anymore because you won't be back out here. 
He then went to the dugout where he continued to throw a tantrum until the game ended. According to the lawsuit, two days later, Moran Jr. says he received a text from his boss that someone did not want him officiating any longer and he was fired. He claimed in the lawsuit the mayor used his influence to ensure he wouldn't be able to officiate in Monk's Corner again, a job where he made $1,200 per season. Wow. My goodness. Um, so yeah, the reason I like this story is because, so I had this experience, um, in, on Saturday where, so my son is in, in youth rec soccer. There's actually a big sign on the field, uh, where we play in Macon and it says, uh, parents, please be advised, colon, uh, your child is here to have fun. The coaches are volunteers. Everyone else are volunteers. This is not the world league your child will not be getting a scholarship for their performance here. And it puts things in perspective. One of the requirements is that um, you, if at this field, and, and I, I'm assuming this is like it everywhere, but this is our first experience with it, is you've got to sit on the opposite side of the field from the players. And in fact, they have uh, off-duty uniform police officers who come and that's the only rule they're told to enforce. Uh, they, they they don't have to. They, there aren't a lot of rules that they enforce at this youth soccer field. Uh, and it's like I want to say they've got like it's a huge facility, several acres. They've got maybe fourteen fields, and that is the rule they enforce. The parents have to stay on the other side of the field from the players, and they can't yell. And the field my son was on, uh, right next to it was a, a pretty good incline up a hill. Uh, and some of the parents had their chairs right on the line uh, with the hill. I mean, basically their chairs were kind of slanted because of the hill and the field was flat and then it sloped up where they had carved it out. And so some of the, the parents were at midfield right on the line and the ball got kicked out. My son was there to throw it in and he couldn't because the parents didn't move their chairs. This really, this, this did piss me off folks. Um, and I wanted to yell, but I knew I would get thrown out of the game and I didn't want to embarrass my kids. So he's having to stand on the line because there are literally chairs right up to the line and he throws the ball down the field and the ref blows the whistle and says, your feet weren't outside the lines. Well, he couldn't be outside the lines. So the ref comes over and tells the parents to back their chairs up so that the kids can stand, uh, outside the line. And then gives the ball to the other team since my kid wasn't, I, I just, I mean, shouldn't you have given it back to my kid and said, okay, do it again. We've made the parents move the chairs. My, my 10 year old was going to make these grown ups move their chairs back. That was the ref's job. And then when he did it, he then gave the ball to the other team. It just aggravated me. It really did. And I couldn't yell at the guy because I would have been the bad guy and I would have gotten, and I didn't want to embarrass my kid, but like, come on. And I realized they're volunteer refs. Everybody's a volunteer. Then it goes back to the sign. Everybody's a volunteer, but still. And, I, and I'm not one of those parents. I, I'm not one. Of, in fact, my kids, if anything, get mad at me because I don't cheer and yell enough. Um, I don't cheer and yell. I talk five hours a day on the radio. I try to save my points. <laughs> so uh, Phil, who works for me, sent me this, this article of, of the umpire uh, now suing because he makes 1200 bucks a year and, and, and supposedly jerk mayor has him fired for a call on the field. Uh, people get so enraged by this stuff. Um, you know, the other thing that I've noted, uh, several of the dads and I on, on the field have commented on this. The moms always yell more than the dads, good and bad. The moms always yell more, but also, and we can't decide if this is, this is how the conversation came up. We can't decide if there's a correlation between the two. The moms 
always know the kids and the dads never do. I don't know the names of any of the kids on on my team on my son's team, and my wife knows them all. I'm like, how do you how do you know these kids? Um, I I just and you know I I go for the games. Uh, we, we trade off on practices on occasion, um, and yet she knows all the kids. I I I don't understand, but all the moms do. All the moms know who all the kids are, and they're all yelling and cheering, and the dads are all kind of sitting back, like, okay, who who's that kid? Uh, <laughs> it's just the male, female dynamic, men and women are not the same. That's the moral of the story here. We, we need to move on to impeachment when we come back. Also, Popeye's is bringing back its fried chicken sandwich and they're making sure, you know, they're going to launch it on a Sunday when Chick-fil-A is closed, but impeachment. When we come back, uh, Jake Tapper asking some tough questions of Democrats. You need to hear the audio. You can, except we're having some phone line difficulties. We actually had a bunch of callers today. Yay. And um, now the phone lines are all screwed up. <laughs> That's the way it works. That's okay. I've got plenty to talk about here uh, with impeachment. I want to play this uh, video between um, Jake Tapper and Eric Swalwell uh, on uh, the impeachment issue. Where did the audio go of course it would be like me to, i've got so many clips of audio today uh that this is now becoming problematic um oh come on chuck todd anyway um i will find the audio for you here in one second the situation is democrats behind closed doors now are starting to think you know maybe we need to rush out in public they've been thinking they were going to wait until thanksgiving to come public and then after thanksgiving they were then going to come out and say uh that they after Thanksgiving, they would come out, they would have the formal process. Well, they're starting to think they need to rush it because they're starting to get questions about the legitimacy of the process. And in getting uh, the legitimacy of the process questioned, they're starting to see some polling shift that suggests that the public is getting tired of the secrecy behind closed doors. And Jake Tapper, among others, is beginning to ask questions of whether or not this is proper for the Democrats to do. That's right. I decided not to cut up the clip because uh, it was about a four-minute thing, and I didn't want to have to put Charlie through that. Uh, essentially, he asked Eric Swalwell whether or not uh, it was legitimate to do. I bet I can find it. I, I, I really would like you guys to hear it if I can find it, so bear with me one second. I think... I see it uh, clipped on. Yes, I do. Um, I do see it clipped here. Uh, anyway, we'll, we'll get to it. Um, Jake Tapper is starting to question whether or not behind the scenes it's a good thing. Um, he's not alone, actually. Uh, Chris Wallace also. Maybe this is the one I'm thinking of. Swalwell was on with Chris Wallace as well. Yes, uh, Chris Wallace. It was. I'm sorry, y'all. I've got so many audio clips right here. I'm, I'm getting them all confused. Yeah, it's Chris Wallace who was after Swalwell. It was Jake Tapper with somebody else. Jake Tapper was questioning uh, one of the Democrats on it. So when you've got Jake Tapper doing it and you've got Chris Wallace doing it, it becomes a pattern in the media to question the Democrats of why are you still behind closed doors? This is the Chris Wallace clip I, I wanted to play for you. I can't find the Jake Tapper. Well, listen to this one. Finally, Congressman, you have made a number of statements over the last few weeks, ever since this story broke, about your feelings about the allegations against the president in Ukraine. Here are just a couple from this last week. 
In America, if you confess to a crime, you still get a fair trial. And uh, we have a confession, we have a crime, whether it's by the president or those obstructing on his behalf. They're doing this because this is what the guilty do. Question, how can you be considered an impartial fact finder when you seem to have come to the conclusion that the president is guilty before you've heard a single witness defending the president? Yeah, and as I said, obstructive acts in our law you know, in our system of laws, are considered uh, consciousness of guilt. When people try and obstruct the proceedings, jurors are told you can be used that as a consciousness but of guilt. Do you think there may be another side to this story? Well, I, I would like to see that side. I haven't seen it uh, yet. It, but as I've said, the president is, is entitled to a fair hearing. If this was Donald Trump justice, Donald Trump would be impeached and removed by now. He jumps to conclusions, doesn't really rely on facts. We're giving him a fair process that he is allowed to participate in. By the way, he has well, chosen he, no, not no, to. He's send not allowed in. to participate because you haven't allowed him to have a counsel present or to ask questions of the witnesses. So he has not been able to participate. He's in allowed this. to participate, and we have subpoenaed witnesses who he, have, he has told not to come forward. We've asked for documents that he has refused to turn over. And I just assume, and I think my colleagues assume, that if those documents could exonerate him, if those witnesses could exonerate him, he would send them forward. If he's going to obstruct our efforts, we're going to put that in the bucket of a consciousness of guilt. So he's he's not turning over documents. He's not testifying. He's not having other people testify, and therefore he's obstructing. Therefore he's guilty. As opposed to he is the president of the United States. Uh, his is a branch of government. Uh, he is the sole executive, and those who serve under him serve at his pleasure and do his bidding. He has an executive and a constitutional privilege, and perhaps it is the president of the United States trying to preserve uh, the distinctions between government branches as it is he's trying to obstruct justice. I mean, you know, this is a real concern here. Whether you like the president or not, you do need to recognize there's a real concern with the separation of powers. There is actually a real concern with the president and being a branch of government and having powers and privileges within that branch of government uh, that the president of the United States needs to defend, not for himself, but for his future. We have seen this play out repeatedly over the past several decades where presidents of the United States make decisions to preserve their power that they don't necessarily think are that big a deal, but they recognize future presidents may need, and so they preserve the power of the presidency. We saw this, in fact, with um, George W. Bush when the House of Representatives subpoenaed uh, Harriet Myers to come before the House of Representatives. And Bush said he was not opposed to Harriet Myers testifying as White House counsel, but there were separation of powers issues for future presidents he needed to defend, and so he couldn't allow Harriet Myers to come. And it went before court, and, and the court decided that Harriet Myers didn't have to testify. There are real issues, whether they want to make light of it or not. Um, I do think that the evidence looks somewhat bad for the president, and I do think that the White House trying to tear down Bill Taylor isn't helpful. In fact, uh, this is the Jake Tapper clip that I do have. Uh, I want to play some of this. This is Jake Tapper uh, this weekend talking about what's going on with the Bill Taylor situation and how the White House is responding. The deposition this past week from uh, let's see. Hang on. I messed all my audio up this morning. It's my fault. Let's see here. Impactful and, quote, reverberating among Republicans on the Hill. Taylor detailed conversations with Trump administration officials pushing an explicit quid pro quo in his view. He was told, quote, everything Ukraine wanted from the United States, including military aid, depended upon the Ukrainian president publicly announcing an investigation into Joe and Hunter Biden. The White House has been 
relentlessly attacking Ambassador Taylor. What you're seeing now, I believe, is a group of mostly career, uh, career bureaucrats who are saying, you know what, I don't like President Trump's politics, so I'm going to participate in this witch hunt that they're, that they're undertaking on the Hill. There's no evidence for that, and the president then called Taylor a never-Trumper, and there's no evidence for that. And he said that all never-Trumpers, quote, are human scum. Human scum. Thousands of miles away, watching this all unfold, was one of Taylor's West Point classmates with whom he served in Vietnam, now retired Colonel Bob Seitz. Let's show this photo here. That's Seitz on the left in this photo from Firebase Rakistan in Vietnam in spring 1971. Bill, See, I, I will stop the audio there. This allows now Taylor's friends to come in and build him up as, as a champion. And by the way, Taylor, the White House should have never gone down the road of trying to undermine Bill Taylor. It's interesting the contrast of how the Republicans are trying to undermine Bill Taylor uh, and his competence and how the Democrats are trying to undermine John Durham. John Durham is the Connecticut uh, U.S. attorney who uh, William Barr has appointed to investigate the issue of 2016 and how the Christopher Steele dossier and the Russia investigation began. Uh, Jonathan Swan was on TV this weekend. He of Axios fame, deeply sourced within the White House, talking about this issue. I want to uh, put a big asterisk there, which is that John Durham has a very serious reputation. And uh, I don't think that at this point, that decision, that he thinks that we've reached a threshold that we can open a criminal investigation. My guess, based on his reputation, is that was based on facts. We don't know what that criminal aspect is. It could be a leak investigation. It could be something to do with classified information. Well, we saw a lot Bill Barr, down. the attorney general, could have also been a big factor in that decision. I'm not Ultimately, saying he could have. I just think we him. shouldn't jump to conclusions about Durham and that decision. Yes, totally. It's hard to undermine John Durham's credibility. He's respected by both sides. And in fact, Democrats are now out there saying that you can have credible people in charge of flawed processes. They're not going after Durham. They're going after the process. The, I think the president's team would be better off if they went after the process instead of after Bill Taylor, uh, because Bill Taylor uh, served admirably in the war. He has served a, a variety of Republican presidents admirably. And in fact, this president chose him to go to Ukraine. Uh, it calls into question the judgment of the president of Mike Pompeo uh, to have picked uh, Bill Taylor put him in charge of Afghanistan, and now want to attack his credibility. Uh, and, you know, is, is there anyone who has broken from this White House or left this White House other than, than Hope, uh, what was it, Hope Shields, uh, who has not been savaged by the people within the White House? That in and of itself sends bad signals, and they, they need to figure out a different way to go after this uh, if they're going to undermine the credibility of the people testifying. Now, there are certainly people within the bureaucracy, I think, who are rushing, who want to testify, who want their uh, almost uh, governmental equivalent of Me Too uh, to, to come say that, yes, the president in some way, uh, I think uh, Me Too, he, he abused his White House staff, he abused his privileges and powers, and he did something I don't like. And I think that may be the prevailing narrative that the White House should hit upon is that these people did not like the direction of American diplomacy the president wanted to chart. And they're trying to obstruct the American people's vote for President Trump through the Electoral College to change the way America conducts its foreign policy. And that's it. Now, that, that, that still causes problems because it causes problems on the Biden front. It causes problems on exactly how uh, – Hunter Biden involved himself in the dealings uh, of 
Um, his father, it causes problems on the president waiting to go after that issue with Hunter Biden and his dad until after Joe Biden was a Democratic president. Uh, presidential um, candidate, that in fact is, I think, what the Democrats are going to focus on here, that the president did not begin to fret about Joe Biden and Hunter Biden until after Joe Biden declared his candidacy and polls showed uh, Joe Biden beating Donald Trump. Then suddenly Donald Trump became very concerned about corruption and Joe and Hunter Biden. And I think you can tie those events together. I think reasonable people can tie those together. What I do think is another unreasonable tack here we're starting to see is that some people, and this isn't coming from the White House, by the way, but but some Trump supporters are starting to say that um, John Roberts can't serve as the presiding officer of the impeachment because he doesn't like the president, because he released a statement admonishing the president about uh, we have um, – we don't have Obama judges or Bush judges or Trump judges. We have conservative judges. We have progressive judges, but we don't have judges beholden to a president. That is a slight against the president. Therefore, John Roberts hates the president. Therefore, John Roberts can't preside. If you support the Constitution, then you need to support the chief justice presiding because the Constitution says the chief justice presides. This would almost be a silly argument as saying that the Democratic senators can't be on the jury because they're biased against the president. And it's got to be fair. No, this is a political process. They put the chief justice in charge to ensure due process, but it is a totally political process. It's a ridiculous argument, but it's one I guarantee we're going to hear. There are so many good arguments for the president, and his supporters constantly try to hit on the worst arguments that make them look foolish. Uh, I'll tell you who else looked foolish. The people of Washington, D.C., the president of the United States, hours after al-Baghdadi is killed, shows up at the Washington Nationals game with Georgia Senator David Perdue. And the crowd boos. Every time the president is shown on screen, the crowd boos. And then they began chanting, lock him up, lock him up. Um, they actually asked Chris Coons about this on um, on CNN this morning. Chris Coons, the Democratic senator, what they thought about all of this. Listen to him, an actual voice of reason. He was booed, and you can hear the chants there of lock him up. What do you make of that, Senator? Um, well, forgive me, I'm, I'm enough of a sort of traditionalist about our institutions that uh, even at a time when there is a lot that our president does that I find uh, disturbing, offensive, unconventional, uh, I have a hard time with the idea of a, of a crowd on a globally televised sporting event uh, chanting lock him up about our president. Um, I frankly think the office of the president deserves respect even when the actions uh, of our president at times don't. Uh, I certainly hope that we won't hear lock him up chants at Democratic rallies or at our convention. I think that's one of the most regrettable, even at times despicable, uh, actions by um, candidate Trump when he was running for president in 2016. Um, it reminds me of things that happen in countries where rule of law is um, unknown or unestablished uh, and, you know, sort of whipping up public furor on both sides, I don't think is constructive or helpful. Um, I understand why. Uh, crowds in Washington would feel a lot of animus towards our president, uh, given a lot of things that he's done. Um, but I frankly, that's why I think uh, those of us in the Senate need to approach the impeachment process um, seriously in a measured and responsible way, um, because our very institutions, our Constitution, 
uh, is at risk uh, by these sorts of um, the passions that have been unleashed by the politics of the There you have it, folks. That's a Democratic senator from Delaware, no less, saying crowds should not be chanting lock him up at the president of the United States decorum and our constitutional traditions demand otherwise. I I was actually shocked to see this and and good for him for saying it. Uh, You know, he raises a larger issue here as well. It was Washington, understandably the crowd in Washington. Washington is hyper democratic. You'll recall Ronald Reagan won in 1984 and won every single state except Minnesota and the District of Columbia. Ronald Reagan swept the nation but couldn't win the District of Columbia. I think it was a regrettable action by people who amended the Constitution to allow Washington, D.C. citizens to vote for president. I I, I think if you live in Washington, you shouldn't be able to vote for anything. Frankly, I don't think anyone should be allowed to be a resident of Washington, D.C. It should just be you drive in and you work for the federal government and then go home. Uh, But that's neither here nor there. What is interesting here as well is that it was the day the president actually did something that if Barack Obama did, this very same crowd would be cheering him. And so it was rather fitting, I think, that the Houston Astros kicked Washington's butt last night in the World Series. Uh, I actually like the Washington Nationals. I I do. Um, But I kind of hope they lose the World Series just because I think Washington uh, needs to be humbled. And losing the World Series would certainly be humbling to Washington. They're, they're all excited about it. Um, and I, I just the behavior of the crowd was appalling. I would never boo Barack Obama, and I didn't care for Barack Obama. Uh, booing the president of the United States of America at the World Series is something that only the, the snobs in Washington, D.C., who are hyper-partisan and hyper-progressive, would do. Uh, They should not have done it, and I would not lose sleep if they lost the World Series, and it would be somewhat ironic and fitting if it was, of all places, a city in Texas that humbled Washington, D.C., in the World Series. I'm here. I'm here. Welcome back. Um, I'm I'm sorry. I had so much I wanted to talk about, and I'm realizing what time it is right now, and uh there just isn't a ton of time, but I do want to talk about Joe Biden before I get out of here. Uh, and I may not have time because there's a story I would much prefer to talk about first. And that is that a global survey has been done and the United States of America is still the most generous nation on the planet. And we dwell so much on politics and political news. I, I, I think it's worth pausing for a moment and, and looking at some positive news about this country at a time when so many people think we're headed towards a civil war or a breakup, a crack up of some kind. The, the nation is bitterly partisan these days. And yet the United States of America is the most charitable nation on the planet. Americans give more to charity than any other country on earth. You know which country is the least charitable? China. Now, Dare I make a partisan point on this? One of the reasons the United States is so charitable is that people of faith in this country, and this is this is not a, a partisan, conservative, progressive, anything point. People of faith in this country, Jewish, Muslim, Christian, Hindu, whatever, they tend to give. And they tend to give because God compels them to. Their their God compels them to. Christians in in particular are compelled by God to be charitable, to tithe, uh, to support the church and its projects, uh, and they do. And it doesn't matter whether they go to a mainline progressive uh, PC USA or Episcopalian church, or if they go to a, a super progressive or a super conservative Calvinist um, a ARP Presbyterian church. They give. 
in China, everything goes back to the state. And the state takes care of everything. And no one has an obligation to give to the state because the state can take whatever it wants. It's the state that gives. And it's interesting to see the juxtaposition there. In China, there are many more people per capita than in the United States. And a lot of it has to do with the state being a communist regime keeps people poor. Now, here's the partisan point. The people in the United States of America who give the least to charity happen to be the progressive secular atheists. The people who most are like the people of China, which is striking. The more secular and progressive you are, the less likely you are to give to charity. You instead internalize that you pay your taxes and the government redistributes your money to those in need and you have no other responsibility. And we see this in places where you have homeless street camps and the like in this country where people have just decided that uh, the homelessness, it's not a problem. It's just an alternative lifestyle and they can camp on the street. You know, in, in California where they're having the blackouts now, Reuters ran a story of California's governor talking about people in de-energization zones. De-energization zones. Say that five times fast. Those are areas where the power's gone out and won't be back on for days, if not weeks. De-energization zones. It, it's like we're we're defining things that shouldn't be normal as normal. The homeless camps in the streets in Los Angeles and San Francisco and Austin, Texas, de-energization zones where the power company can't run the power. These should not be new normal things. And and this charitable thing is tied in there as well. That the 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 more you believe the government's the solution to everything, the less charitable you are to your fellow man. That should be an indictment of socialism right there. 